0: This is the all-sports podcast devoted to your favorite teams in North Texas. Welcome to Ballsy, a
1: production of the Dallas Morning News and Sports Day. Our weekly show is proudly
2: hosted... Okay, strike that. Our show is hosted by Kevin Sherrington, Evan Grant, and myself. I'm David Moore, and who knows, maybe we'll have a special guest or two along the way.
1: Catch other episodes by subscribing to the Ballsy Podcast on iTunes. We're also on social media. Just search Ballsy
2: Podcast on Facebook and Twitter, and you'll be notified of the latest episode.
0: Don't forget, it's Ballsy with a Z. Are you ready, sports fans? Ballsy starts now.
1: Hello, everybody. Welcome into Ballsy, the Sports Day DFW Dallas Morning News Sports Podcast. I am Kevin Sherrington, joined by David Moore. Hello, David. Hello, Kevin. and.
2: Let me start by telling you how excited I am about these first two
1: segments. (laughs) And why are you so excited about the first two segments, David? Because it will just be Kevin and me.
2: (laughs) I think that will facilitate the conversation and hopefully lift our listeners to a a euphoric state, not having to... (laughs) Have Evan interject himself and and bring the proceedings
1: down. Bring it down, yeah. Yeah. Evan's not going to be with us on the first two segments. He'll be here for our Rangers uh, segment. Um, Oh, he will. yeah, I'm sorry if that brings oh. you down, David. Uh, he'll be—he is out in uh, uh, La La Land uh, in, uh with the Rangers as they're playing the Angels out there. They—they uh, they came away with a win in their first uh, in their first game out there, so that was pretty big. And a
2: very strange occurrence in that win, beyond just the win, that I'm sure Evan will want to talk about later in the podcast.
1: Well, I think we leave the strange things to strange guys. Uh, <laughs> so let's—we'll do that. Everyone has a role. Yeah, that's exactly right, and meanwhile uh david we'll talk about what 's going on with the cowboys uh this week and explain to everybody about uh, involuntary workouts and in the in the words of uh, mr. Hambrick, uh, what do voluntary mean
2: exactly uh, Darren Hambrick uh, uttered i would say that profound phrase uh twenty years yes. ago after uh, skipping many of the much of the off season program in a contract dispute. Uh, was questioned about not being there. The only guy not there uh, then uttered, "What do voluntary mean?" Uh, got a lot of play around here. Still resonates, I think, and it resonates even more this off season. Um, you know, last year uh, everything was virtual in the off season uh, in the NFL. This year, now that you're underway with the vaccinations, now that you're farther down the pandemic road, uh, the NFL wants its players back for on-field, on-site, uh, off-season program. Uh, the Players Association is saying, well, we don't think the numbers really uh, warrant that yet, so we believe it should be virtual. And you've seen teams come out and say uh, they will take part virtually, but these are voluntary and they don't attend, intend to uh, be at the facility. The Cowboys are against the trend there. And the, and the question is whether they're an outlier or they're really where this is going to go. And and the reason is, uh, you know, there are 230 players in the league that have either de-escalators in their contracts where they lose money if they don't take part in a certain percentage of the offseason program or bonuses tied to appearances during the offseason program. Like I said, 230 around the league, which comes to an average of 7.2 players a team, which isn't that much. Well, the Cowboys have 18 players in that position. So, you know, nearly, uh, you know, about two and a half times more than any other than the league average. And that's not counting a guy like Randy Gregory, who stands to make $180,000 if he takes part in the offseason program. So um, the, the Cowboys had more, you know, phase one started on Monday of this week. Uh, the Cowboys had more players at their facility than any other team in the league. And I think this will continue. And, um, you know, the union stance on this is that the union president, uh, executive director, excuse me, uh, uh, says that, you know, they don't think it's safe for players uh, to be at the facilities yet uh, in mass. But he did say that um, he said, look, and remember, this is voluntary. In the collective bargaining agreement, it's voluntary. And so this isn't a boycott. This isn't withholding anything. These are voluntary workouts. And and that phrase has gotten corrupted through the years. I, I think, you know, from co- pressure from coaches, uh, from players fearing they could lose a roster spot or a starting job if they're not there, or for players just wanting to be there for their teammates and with their teammates. Um, you know, most of them have showed up and consider – uh, this really mandatory more than voluntary, um, but it is voluntary. And, and as the union says, uh, we leave it to every player for their choice. We're not going to interfere with the money, uh, you know, if they stand to make money. But let's say this, if uh, if players stand to make money by going to the offseason program, why don't players and agents, why are players and agents doing it for free? And so I think, I think what you're going to see is, is after this offseason, it's, it's going to go one or two ways. Either the offseason really is virtual, except for the mandatory mini camp, which comes in mid-June, or teams are going to adopt the Cowboys model and structure contracts that will pay players to get them to the facility during the offseason.
1: Well, God forbid that anybody copies the Cowboys on anything. <laughs> well, let's see.
2: I know that will give some people pause
1: just hearing that phrase yeah absolutely so so david let's talk about the the draft it's still coming up here at the end of the month uh and you, mean you don't want
2: to talk more about procedural issues and organized team activities and no. what constitute what the per diem is and no, I, you,
1: you I, really I, don't want to go through all that i just checked out of our union uh, zoom meeting uh, right before we came into this I'm, <laughs> i've had enough of that so that's enough of union talk uh let's uh let's talk about the uh some of the uh, uh, scenarios we've seen develop in mock drafts and, uh, and who's up, who's down, uh, who's around. I'm gonna I'm gonna give you uh, names of of certain players who are gonna fall to the Cowboys at ten, and if the Cowboys keep their pick at ten, and and say, is this guy tempting enough for the Cowboys? So so the the one name that uh, that Jerry Jones kind of uh, uh, propagated a little bit was uh, the name of Kyle Pitts of Florida. He's not going to fall to 10. I think that's impossible. He's too good of a player to get that far. But let's say he does fall to the Cowboys at 10. Would they take him?
2: In that scenario, as much as you should argue they should still go defense, I think they would just from the standpoint that he is considered a generational type player. Um, you know, they had no intentions of taking C.D. Lamb last year, and he drifted to them. Um I can tell you, C.D. Lamb wasn't rated as highly as a receiver as Pitts is as a as a tight end, and so when you're really talking about a, a, a generational potential generational player at a position, um, I think that overrides your immediate needs, immediate and and very real crying needs on on the defensive side of the ball, and I, I really think he is the only. Offensive skill player in the top ten that would force the Cowboys to say, "Yeah, look, we we got to do this. We'll we'll get back to defense the rest of the way here."
1: Yeah, I, I agree with you. I think but again, was- he's yeah. not going to be there.
2: I, I don't. He- I don't really see any scenario where he's there because he's just too. Because people are talking about three receivers, you know, in this top ten potentially two or three receivers. Well, but this is like. This is a tight end that only comes along every, you know, 8, 10, 12 years. Uh, That's different from, so if you're a team, are you going to go, okay, why don't I take the third receiver in this draft or do I take Pitts? And and I think when you look at that, you just go, well, I'm going to take Pitts in that scenario and, and still get some very good receivers in the second, third, fourth round if I want to.
1: Yeah, I agree. I think they would take Pitts, and I wouldn't have a problem with that. If he were available at 10, I, I wouldn't have a problem with them taking him because of the talent, the sheer talent alone. You take the best player, in and then he would be the best player available at that point, although he won't be there. All right, so let's say that the Oregon tackle, Pene Sewell, drops to 10. I don't believe that's going to happen either because I believe the Bengals are going to take him. They'd be yeah. crazy not to take him, but let's say that he does.
2: I don't see that either. The top – I would say under – the previous regime with Jason Garrett, that was a no-brainer. Sewell is gone immediately. In fact, in fact, they're probably looking and poised to be ready to jump up a spot or two if he started to slide their way just to ensure they would get him. I don't believe that Mike McCarthy is as invested in offensive line draft capital the way that um, Jason Garrett was. I, I think he feels look, we already have two first-round picks in this line in Zach Martin and Tyron Smith and another guy in Lyle Collins who probably would have been a first-round pick uh, if not for the unusual circumstances surrounding uh, when he was taken in the draft. Um, We need to spread this across the board. We need to focus on defense. Um, I think that would be a very spirited argument um, you didn't ask me about Slater. If Slater was there instead of Sewell, I don't think it'd be that difficult of an argument. I think they'll definitely go defense. I think if Sewell is there, they would have to talk about it because you're talking about the top offensive lineman in the draft. And we've seen what's happened with, uh, Tyron Smith's uh, injury situation over the last few years. But, um, you know, I'm split on that one. I, I think that'd be a very good discussion uh pits is a no-brainer sewell i think this is a discussion slater who you didn't ask about i think they would definitely uh still stick with defense there
1: well david i was going one by one i was going to throw Rashawn <laughs> slater from northwestern next uh yes I, I i think slater is a guy who is seen more as you can play any position on the offensive line they like him for his versatility more than anything else uh sewell looking like a, a prototypical left tackle uh, uh, basically a Tyron Smith starter kit. So I, I think obviously we can put both those guys in the same category, maybe maybe Slater a little less so uh, than, than Sewell. So, all right, so we've got those two covered. Now let's go here to the next thing, which is quarterbacks. I, I don't really see anything else of import that's going to drop to the Cowboys at 10 except for quarterbacks. It's a possibility we see Justin Fields of Ohio State, who's, who goes anywhere from three to the 49ers to – dropping into the to to the 10th pick. Uh, We see the same thing with Mac Jones. The other quarterbacks involved have all been talked about in that in that uh, one through nine. Uh, But those two guys have been kind of bouncing around a little bit. Obviously, the Cowboys are not going to take a quarterback. Uh, They just signed, uh, you know, Dak Prescott to a four four year deal. They're not going to go spend a first round pick on a quarterback. They might trade that pick. Uh, And I, I would think that the Patriots. Would be very amenable to that type of thing, and I could see the Cowboys trading down to fifteen if they wanted to do that. Let me ask you this, then, David: which which of those quarterbacks you think might be in that place, and do you have an idea of what first round quarterbacks have done in the last several years?
2: Well, I, I still think I know Jones to wedging him into San Francisco at three was very popular early you know it could still happen i mean there are quarterbacks that go much higher than what the consensus is on them and we've seen it year after year but i still think out of the five quarterbacks he is the most likely uh to still be on the board when when Dallas is is there at 10 and you know you you brought up these other drafts and, and to me jones is the x factor in this um you know go back go back to 2016 there were three quarterbacks taken in the first round, which tells you there were comparable expectations about these guys. They were Golf, Wentz, and Lynch. Paxton Lynch isn't even in the league anymore, uh, first-round pick. The year before that, in 2017, the first quarterback taken in the draft was Mitchell Trubisky at number two. Second quarterback was Patrick Mahomes at 10, and number 12 was Deshaun Watson. Uh, go the year before that 2018 Mayfield went one Sam Darnold went number three in the first round he's now on the second team Allen good pick 10 Rosen 32 last pick of the first round Lamar Jackson so you see it time and time again the year before that Dwayne Haskins went in the first round number 15 so Just because you have five quarterbacks that are going to be taken in the first round, even recent history shows that one to two of these guys is not going to hit. So, But again, summing all this up, all of this helps Dallas because there's no question at least four quarterbacks will go before they pick and potentially five.
1: Yeah, I I don't think there's any question about that. I've I've thought that all along. This was was perfect for the Cowboys. And I think it also facilitates the possibility they could trade from 10 to 15 because all of the offensive players that are going to go before that are going to push down the cream of the crop on defense and puts puts the Cowboys in a unique position where they could make that kind of deal, still get a, a good defensive player at 15, whether it's one of the cornerbacks, whether it is Patrick Sertain, the the second, whether it is Caleb Farley, who probably is going to be pushed down a little, even a little further than yeah, that. I think
2: much further, yeah.
1: Yeah. or J.C. Horn from South Carolina. I think one of those three guys is going to be available, maybe even Micah Parsons, the, the linebacker from Penn State, another another really good player. There's going to be a good defensive player there available at 15, I believe. And so I, I'm all for the Cowboys doing that.
2: But I don't think they want to go back farther than 15. I think if you go back more than five spots, you risk landing on a plateau you don't want, and suddenly you're going – oh, we really like these two corners. They're both gone. Oh, we really like this linebacker. He's gone. Well, we really like this edge, edge rush. Oh, wait, he's gone too. And then uh, you didn't do yourself any favors. No, you didn't.
1: I, I think there's no question that they need to to go for, no further than 15, but I think you can pick up a, a, a first-round pick, say, in 2022. That'd be terrific. All right, that's going to do it for our Cowboys segment. Uh, uh, we're also going to talk about the, uh, the, the Mavericks and what in the heck are they doing uh, and also the, uh, the Rangers. And then at that point, we're going to bring in our old pal, Evan Grant, who's out there on the West coast. Uh, David, I don't know how much you've been keeping up with the Mavericks these days. They're a hard team to watch at times. Uh, I, I w- was watching the, the game the other night uh, when they uh, the Kings came in on a nine game losing streak with the worst defense in NBA history the worst defense in NBA history and they lost by 14 points uh, an, an unbelievable loss by the Mavericks at that point they've had the opportunity here that they, they wind about the, the play in tournament don't want to be in seven through ten you're they were a game and a different times game and a half two games behind Portland and a prime opportunity here with with the Trailblazers really stumbling losing five of seven. And what do the Mavericks do? They lose five of seven. Instead of putting away teams like like Houston, Oklahoma City, uh, the Spurs, and then the Kings of all things, and needing, of course, a, a last second miracle shot by Luca to beat Memphis, another team below them in the standings, it just is. It really defies description. Well, you know, we,
2: we've talked about the, the the starts and stops to their season, and and while they're while for a long time there really was uh, justification for them looking as disjointed as they were, because they were trying to make the shift to a more defensive team, they were trying to find that sweet spot. Uh, they'd missed all the time with COVID. The uh, you know they weren't able to practice that much. But every time this team like wins four or five games in a row, which they had done before this stretch, and you say, okay, at least now you know they. They get it. Everyone kind of understands their roles. They understand how they need to play, how they need to rotate defensively. Then they just have these inexcusable performances, and they really are. And they're against teams that are below them in the standings. And so they continually put themselves in jeopardy for what this postseason is going to be because they can't take care of the teams that they're more talented than. They actually actually play better on the road against teams above them in the standings than they do non-playoff teams at home. And you can say, well, you know, if you actually have to have a split personality, that's the one you want because they're going to be facing the better teams in the playoffs. But something's not right about this team. And I think it becomes more apparent with each passing, with each passing quarter, when you allow Sacramento 45 points in one quarter, Um, this isn't, These aren't schematic issues they're working out. These aren't um, chemistry issues they're working out. You're seeing complete and utter lapses uh, uh, of effort and uh, uh, accountability to start games. And they put themselves in a spot on, I think they're definitely going to be in the play-in tournament, do you feel good about their ability to win two games? I mean, say they beat Memphis in the first game, which is where they are now. Memphis is Memphis is only one game back. Uh, well, then you look up and say they play Golden State. Uh, do you feel good about being able to stop Seth Curry now? I mean, here's a guy who's hit 10 three-pointers in four games over the last 10 days. Um, there's no way they can stop or slow Seth Curry. Uh, defensively. And, 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 you know, I think the Sacramento game also showed that this is not a quick, this is not a fast team. I think they have some quick players on it, but they're not a fast team. And you saw, even when they scored, Sacramento was getting down court and scoring before they could even get back. And I think other teams have started to notice that. And even teams that don't play at that pace that have that speed are using it to to get Dallas back on its heels defensively and look they're still not a they're a better defensive team than what they were but that's still not a calling card of theirs you know they can do it in short bursts but they can't sustain it over the course of the game that's just not their identity
1: no it's not and you know I think one of the things we've seen too as a problem is that you when know, we've talked about this before how disappointing that Josh Richardson has been uh i I was surprised that against against the Kings that, that uh, he was not able to do anything against Darren Fox, and then he wasn't doing anything offensively at all either. And, of course, yeah. neither was anyone else. Uh, and, and one of the things, too, that, that I've really noticed is that while wow, you're really seeing defenses collapse now on Kristaps uh, Porzingis. Uh, you know they're running a, a second guy at him. He ha- he has one guy at him. He starts to turn. They run another guy at him to try to strip him of the ball. At that point, we ran a picture in the front page of the of the Dallas Morning News, which showed him surrounded by four guys at one point. Yeah. Uh, and, and you know it's not really one of his strong points is finding the, the open man. Uh, he's not a he's not a terrific passer. He's a he's a he's a decent passer, but not a great one. And this is the kind of this is the kind of stuff he's going to see, and and this is going to be really interesting to me to see going forward how they're able to, to, to handle these things because this is a team that uh, it's frustrating to watch from the standpoint of not being able to handle lesser teams. Uh, not only that, but it's also frustrating because I, I believe, and I think we've also discussed this as well. Uh, they just need some old heads on this team. They need a, they need some guys to say, "Listen, you got to play hard all the time." Uh, this is a team. Uh, that loses its cool too much. Luka Doncic is a great player, but getting a technical at the end of that Sacramento game, when you're trying to climb back, and you get a technical uh, at that point, uh, was a disaster. Just, a, just a complete disaster. Uh, he's got to learn in those kind of situations that he can't lose his cool. Uh, and and this is a, a, a team, I think, still struggling with with those things at this point.
2: They are. I, I agree with that. I, I think we've also reached the point, too, um, you look at every aspect of what's going on, and, and Rick Carlisle, deservedly so, has not gotten a lot of criticism through the years for how he's handled things. I think you have to look at how this team is being handled, and, and when you have teams consistently fall into the patterns where they have, where this team doesn't have energy to start games, you have to start looking, well, sometimes – players tune out a voice. They don't listen to it. They don't give it the weight that they did at at another stage for whatever reason. Uh, I think this whole organization is on alert for these final few weeks of the regular season and what they do or don't do in the postseasons. And and I think the the ramifications, and there are going to be some hard looks taken at some things that have just been assumed that, well, uh, we know this We know we're fine here going forward. What about this? What about that? Um, I I think everyone, uh, including Rick Carlisle and his staff, is going to get a harsh look uh, depending how this plays out
1: yeah i agree with you 100 percent on that and, and you know i i get stuff all the time from readers hate rick carlisle want to get rid of him you know he's he's a terrible he can't get along with players he's not in tune with today's players and i say i always tell them that's not true first of all the, the flow offense he lets lets people do what they want he sets up plays for them coming in and out of of uh, uh timeouts and, in and out of quarters those are the kind of things that that nba players like they respect rick but I agree with you. It's going to be very interesting to me to see going forward how they handle uh, Luka Doncic and what he wants. And if and listen, you know, Donnie Nelson told me several years ago that, you know, uh, we want this guy to be here forever. We want Rick Carlisle to be our coach forever. Well, yeah, just as long as Luka Doncic likes him, that that's how long he'll be the head coach. The minute he signs off, that's it.
2: Yeah, and you can like somebody and not be a ringing endorsement. And we're not saying that there's friction there. There there's no indication of that. But we're just saying the way this is playing out, this is so far below expectations. Not only with where they are right now, but just how they look, just how bad they look. Uh that there're going to be consequences of that. And uh but the other thing is if you're looking at a coaching change, you better have a pretty good option in place. And and that's that's the difficult part in a lot of ways.
1: Absolutely. All right, that's going to do it for our Mavs segment. We've had uh, our our first one talking about the Cowboys and the draft and what they should do. We cleared that all up for everybody. Uh, And now we've talked about the Mavericks and the uh, budding train wreck is what it looks like to me at this point. They really got a lot that they got to figure out. Joining us now is our old pal, Evan Grant, who just woke up from a long winter's nap and and found himself in L.A. How's it going, Evan? Uh, How's it going there, old-timer? You're the one you're the sleepy one, not me. Don't be calling me an old timer.
2: have blackout curtains in your room. What's going on there? I've
0: Jeez. got the blackout curtains down. Um uh, as soon as this uh this recording is over, I'm gonna hop back into the bed and catch up on a sleep that I didn't get. So oh. um yesterday was a long day flying from uh Dallas to LA covering the game and then had a bunch of stuff happen. Um Series that was going to be all about Shohei Otani and, and the greatest player to ever come out of Japan. And last night it was um, three players from the Rangers who all came through Japan that, that kind of stole the show. Obviously, Kohei O'Hara Arahara, pitched really, really well. Um, Adolis Garcia, Kevin's new favorite player, actually played four games in Japan before he ever got to the United States between Cuba and the U.S. And Joely Rodriguez, who saved the game in the eighth inning with a big with a big outing uh, against the heart of the lineup, had gone to uh, Chinichi there for two years before he ever met success in the U.S. So uh, the games are all being broadcast on NHK, NHK back to Japan, and I think there were a lot of people there that uh, that were very familiar with all the players. All right, just a couple of things here I want to go
1: over because the three guys you mentioned that's all that's all good stuff. Uh, let, let's start with Arihara because I'm intrigued by the fact that you know, like all—I I don't want to stereotype anybody here—but all Japanese pitchers have like 12 pitches in their arsenal. Uh, he gets here, the the Rangers are saying, "Hey, what we want you to do here is Just throw your fastball." And he, and then he sucked, just throwing his fastball uh, or using it as his primary pitch. And now he's gone back to throwing, you know, his arsenal of seven. I believe you documented seven different pitches he threw in the in the game against the Angels.
0: He's thrown seven in each of the first in each of the last two games, but I, I dispute the, fa- the the notion that the Rangers just wanted him to throw fastballs. I didn't mean they were
1: just wanting to throw fastball, but they don't they didn't want him to be the tinkerer that he was in
0: much the same way you Darvish was. No, I, I think they I, I think they wanted him to to just mix. They they felt like if he could add a little bit more four-seam fastball to his mix, that he could be more effective over here. And what he has thrown in the last two outings when he's been so good is if there's been any pitch that's been his primary pitch, it is the four-seamer. He's thrown that more than anything else. But he's still not throwing that more than 25% of the time during the games. And so it creates these just unpredictable patterns and sequences of pitches. And he made Mike Trout look bad twice last night in consecutive at bats, which is something that no Rangers pitcher does. Um, and and I, I really think I go back to his previous start in Tampa last week when he got into a real jam in the second inning and he looks up and here's a guy from Japan who he had faced one time over there in Yoshi Susugo coming to the plate and I think that kind of kicked in, okay, you've got the four-seamer, but use all your pitches here. And from that point on, he was a completely different pitcher and has been. And he has struck out 11 guys in his last 11 and a third innings. Uh, He's working on 12 and a third scoreless innings at this point in time. Um, He has – the one thing I've said, and I said this to Japanese media guys who I talked to last night, is the one thing that has appeared to me with Arahara and and – is that each outing he seems to have gotten some incremental improvement in some fashion. Um, and that goes back to, to spring training. I, I feel like he has gotten a little bit better each time out. And I think that kind of dovetails with what the Rangers liked about him because they thought that here was a guy who was really open to making adjustments and was uh, – was pretty a uh, pretty cerebral cerebral thinker on his own and it it's turned out to look like a very good combination here early. Yeah, I the the thing I want to
1: see from if you if you go to uh Japan to get a guy, uh I I understand that there are certain things you want him to do, but uh he was successful over there doing what he was doing and and I I, I don't like it too much. When we want a guy to make too many adjustments, if this is what made him successful over there, it's probably what's going to be best for him here. And I, and I understand what you're saying about throwing the four seamer more often, but uh, sometimes guys can overreact to the, to the advice that people are giving you. He's trying to be a pleaser. He's trying to do what you want me to do.
0: And he ends up doing something that's not good for him. But I, I do think you also have to factor in Kevin, the Japanese by and large, Japanese hitters and American hitters uh, play the game in two different ways. Japanese hitters are still much more about contact and are much, the strikeout is still much more of a, um, of a taboo for, for Japanese hitters. And here, nobody cares about strikeouts anymore. So that does allow you to uh, fold in some things that maybe you didn't do as, as, as often in Japan. Yeah, I agree with
1: that. All right, let's move on to, uh, to my new uh, favorite ranger to watch, uh, Adoles Garcia, who, uh, I, as we talked about in spring training, as uh, and Chris Woodward said, probably our best player in spring training. Uh, in fact,
2: Kevin, I, I remember I think you pinpointed him, and and for some reason Evan didn't think much about him. No, and, Evan, am I correct
1: in that assessment? Yeah, that, That's absolutely right. Evan said, you watch, this guy will flop uh he'll be terrible. He's got he's got no skills and uh and uh, so Which seemed
2: out of character for Evan, but then that's why it struck me and that's why I remember it. Yeah.
1: yeah. I
0: yeah, but- I think what I said was, you know, be careful about evaluating solely on spring training. And and that's something that the Rangers have said often. Um but what they've also said is that this guy has an an innate skill set. It that it, it is He's, he's got a lot of tools, um, but there are plenty of toolsy players who never figure out the art of hitting. Um, what has stood out here in these first weeks' worth of games is that he's clearly more willing to hit the ball the other way, and that can make all the difference in the world for a player. He's got plenty of power to go the opposite way, and so if he's willing to shorten up his swing a little bit and hit the ball the opposite way – he becomes much more dangerous. You know, he had two great games in Tampa, then went through, I, I think it was a one for 12, um, and then came out last night with with two big hits. So um, I, I think even if you talk to Chris Woodward, there's some question about how consistent he will be, but when he does perform, it's electric. And there's no doubt that the amount of emotion he plays with really is helping a young team that – that could, that could always use a little bit of boost to energy. You know, I mean, he there's a joy to his game. There's a there's an energy that, that that's on display every time he does something, and um, I, I can't dispute that at all.
1: here's the thing about him: I don't know. We talk about spring training, and I and I understand spring training as well as anybody. The thing is, this guy hit 32 home runs at AAA for St. Louis, 32 home runs, uh, and then the Cardinals just gave up on him. He said, ah, give him a few at-bats. All right, you can have him. You know, I don't understand watching Garcia play. This is a guy who has really good speed, uh, plus speed, a plus arm. We saw that on the throw the other night from right field, uh, a great play by Jose Trevino to take the short hop and get the tag. Uh, it, it was on both ends a great play. Uh, and and I'd heard that, well, he's not a very good outfielder. Uh, and, and I think, well – He may, his instincts may not be very good. I don't know, but he's fast and he's got a great arm. Those are two good places to start. Um, and he's, and of course he is 28 years old. That's a little bit of a concern uh, that it's taken him this long to get to a point where he could maybe make a contribution here. And I'm not saying he's going to be Randy Rosarina, uh, you know, for Tampa Bay last year, who, who came up and made such a huge splash. And in the postseason was a, a revelation. Uh, I'm not saying he can be that. But this is a guy with an unbelievable skill set. Uh, he is the best athlete on the Rangers. He's uh, the best athlete I've seen them have in a long time. He's even better than, than Joey Gallo from that standpoint, I think. Uh, and, and he played center field Monday night. Uh, he looked pretty comfortable out there. He made the catch at the wall on uh, uh, Shohei Ohtani's, uh, uh, which I, a shot that I thought was out off the bat. It just looked like he launched it. Uh, and he, and he gauged that, uh, that catch and, and did a good job going over the wall to get it. So it looks like everything – and listen, I understand. He, he, may go, he may fall flat on his face, uh, but we've seen Leote Tavares fall flat on his face at this point. And I think what we need to, 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 to look at this is is that I think that Leodi's getting a little too much, a little too soon needs to go back down and uh, and refine things. Leote Tavares never hit 32 home runs in the minor leagues uh, in one season. He hasn't hit 32 home runs total in, in the minor leagues. Uh, so what I'm saying is is that 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 Odolis Garcia d- deserved this opportunity. He's making the most of it. And, uh, and let's ride this roller coaster and see where it goes.
2: Was it just age, do you think? I mean, is that why –
1: well, I think there was some some concern about his age and how how old he is, and and uh, and he's had a. Of course, he's also has a circuitous route to get where he is here, right, Evan?
0: Yeah, but I mean, the the I think the biggest thing in, in why St. Louis kind of gave up on him, and let's also remember that you mentioned Randy Orzorina here. St. Louis had a Randy Orzorina too, and they sent him to um, they sent him to to Tampa Bay in that deal. Um, you know. In the two years leading up to the Rangers trade, he hit 22 and 32 home runs. And had and had an OPS, despite all of that, that hovered right at 800. That was because of a tremendous number of swing and miss strikeouts and very few walks. And so there was some question about plate discipline. Um, and I, I think in some regards, there was maybe some thought about where he is asking him to play center field a little bit too much for him defensively is right field better for him. That kind of maybe fell a little bit in between with the Cardinals and maybe they overanalyzed him, but they, they basically had to take him off their roster. Um, he went to the Rangers and look, he, you know, the Rangers were awful last year and he got all those six at bats with the Rangers last year. So, um, both teams have, have, have seen that there are some potential flaws and, and lack of consistency, but the, the thing I want to find out about, and we really haven't had a chance to dive into this too much based on the, on the interview setups right now is, you know, the Rangers do believe that he made changes to his swing over the past winter. I want to know how that, the, I want to know what exactly he did and how they got him to buy into after being a professional for, for over a decade in Cuba and Japan and and, and in the minor leagues, how they got him to buy into being willing to go the opposite way, because that to me has made all the difference in the world for him. I I agree that, uh, look, I I think he's going to be a streaky hitter. I I just think that's what he's going to
1: be. And he is, no, he doesn't take a lot of walks. You look at his OBP now, it's it's not good. Uh, And and so he's going to have some issues. But the thing is, he he he's like Joey Gallo. He brings so many other things to the table. He's got a tremendous arm. He's got tremendous speed. It looks like he can really play center field. Uh, He is a big time upgrade over what Leote has been bringing uh, in his short term.
0: Well, offensively for sure. And I mean, I think that the common theme here is you look at Leote Tavares and Anderson Tejeda and Kyle Cody, who got into a world of trouble last night in the bullpen. And these are all guys who basically went from Class A to the majors. because of last year's pandemic and the weird roster setup. And what has come true, as always comes true, is guys who aren't absolutely dominating at the upper levels of the minor leagues are not ready for Major League Baseball. And I think that's what's being proven out. I think that you've seen to Garcia play center field two of the last three games going into Tuesday night. And I think you're going to see that for, for a period of time here. I think you're, that means you're going to have... Uh, Leody Tavares sent back to the minor leagues, um, and, and really, the next time Leody comes up needs to be at a point in time when he is dominating whatever league he is in. You look at his numbers, and we made this point last year, last week, Kevin. You look at his numbers offensively; they they, they have not stacked up at any level at which he's been at. Guys who have had success and been great defenders at levels the at the same levels that Leody were at still had trouble making adjustments to the big leagues. It's it's a tough thing. And so I I think you can't, once again, you can't just hope that a guy is going to rise to the challenge. He has to give you some definitive evidence based on the metrics that you all have now that he is going to be able to adjust and transition to the big leagues. I, I wanted to get into Dane Dunning, but we're going to have to talk about uh,
1: some other, a couple of things real quick before we get out of here. Uh, and we've talked about the Cowboys and the draft, and we've talked about the Mavericks and the wreck they've become here in the last couple of weeks. Um, uh, and that is, are you seeing enough of players here who are, who are giving you an idea that maybe they've got a little something here uh, in this short sample size that we've seen so far? And And is this looking like, You know, we're not expecting the Rangers to be contenders, obviously. Uh, You're just looking to see the Rangers get some answers. Are you starting to get some ideas that they might be getting some intriguing possibilities?
0: Listen, I think Nate Lowe has been everything that the Rangers anticipated he would be when they they got him. Willing to go the opposite way, has good discipline at the plate. I think Nick Solak has made adjustments, which is what the Rangers thought he was capable of doing um, after a really rough start. And he's a he's a guy who is in tune and knew that he was trying to do too much. Isaiah Kiner Falefa hasn't been great offensively at shortstop, but he's been the best defensive shortstop in the league. Um, you look at these two young starters in in Dunning and Arahara, both have been more than adequate, uh, and and you're getting some veteran performances that that are important to kind of like tide you over. So yes, I think the Rangers have a, that the Rangers are eight and nine as we sit here on a Tuesday morning taping this. I, I, I think is a pleasant surprise. And, and they could very easily be above five hundred at this point, and that would be all you've asked for. They survived that San Diego-Tampa Bay stretch without getting buried. So I, I think that to this point, um, while there have been some really ugly games, there have also, and, and there's been some struggles with the offense, I, I think you have to be fairly encouraged with what you've seen to this point.
2: And I think that fits because while we've had some ugly podcasts, there's something to look forward to with us as well. Isn't there, Kevin?
0: Uh, Yeah, no,
1: we're branding Ballsy. We're dropping that awful name. Who came up with that? And we're coming (laughs) and we're going with Sports Day Insider. We're going to have all kinds of stuff. There's going to be there's going to be gifts for listeners. There's going to be all kinds of things going into this. It's going to be unbelievable. We we hope that uh, you'll come back and check that all out. It's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, we, are going to have even more fun than we've always had. And our pal, Jeff Whittington, who's out there in his, uh, in his trailer in the middle of Florida, uh, he's doing a fabulous job for us. Uh, we lost our old friend, uh, Jose, but, uh, we're, we're, we're moving on and we're, we're going to be bigger and better than ever. So from everybody in here to everybody out there, thanks. And we'll see you next week in our new life.